Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Nausicaa Renner, Washington editor for The Intercept, filling in for Ryan Grimm. The January 6th hearings are coming to a pause for the August recess. So far, they've been described as explosive, blockbuster hearings that bring into focus an attempt at a coup by Donald Trump. Thursday's hearing was full of revelations about what Trump himself was doing that day as a mob infiltrated the Capitol. The committee obtained footage of President Trump filming his infamous statement to the protesters the following day. The video shows him editing out of the script on the fly the statement that, quote, the election is over. Okay, I'll I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? The hearings have added countless details and testimonies under oath, and they've captured the attention of the nation. But I wanted to use today's episode to ask a few questions. What are they really adding to what we already know? And what might we never know about what happened on January 6th? Let's go back in time for a moment to January 7th, 2021. After the Capitol was breached, Representative Cory Bush tweeted, As a member of the House Judiciary, I am calling for the immediate impeachment of Donald Trump and his removal from office. I'm also calling for the expulsion of GOP members of Congress complicit in inciting the attack on our nation's capital. Their actions must have consequences. On January 7th, she introduced a petition to have members of Congress expelled who attempted to overturn the election results. Just five days after the attack, she introduced a bill asking the Ethics Committee to investigate whether those elected officials had violated their oath of office. The big picture has been clear since the very beginning. How much have the hearings changed what we knew back then? And what are the barriers to uncovering what President Trump did that day? To answer those questions, I'll be joined on the show today by Robert Mackey, senior writer for The Intercept, and by Ken Klippenstein, investigative reporter for The Intercept. Rob, uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what moments jumped out at you in yesterday's hearing? So obviously, I think the standout moments um, in terms of the impact on the internet, at least, which is the way a lot of people were following this, was the, first of all, the attack on Josh Hawley, which seemed to some extent to be gratuitous. I mean, I think obviously, members of the public who were outraged by January 6th uh, took Hawley's encouragement of the pro-Trump mob, you know, to be a very important, significant and upsetting thing. Uh, What we learned from the hearing was that at least one member of the Capitol Police who was helping to protect him and give him what uh, they called a safe space from which to encourage the mob was also outraged and upset by it. She told us that Senator Senator Hawley's jester riled up the crowd and it bothered her greatly because he was doing it in a safe space, protected by the officers and the barriers. 
So the footage of, of Holly then running away from the mob uh, through the, the halls of the Capitol, down the stairs, uh, and even maybe upsetting his supporters, he was wearing a mask as he did it, was obviously calculated to embarrass Holly and, and maybe upset his supporters. It's, it was kind of an odd moment because it, it seems so calculated by the committee and by the television producers they worked with to produce this uh, hearing and the other hearings, to the extent that one of the producers uh, was even in the hearing room and filmed the reaction of the crowd on his phone, posted it on social media where it's racked up four to five million views already. So it's kind of a strange moment. Uh, if you think of it as a television entertainment, as an episode of Colbert or something, that would make perfect sense. It's a little odd and sort of discordant with the idea that this is to produce a record for history of what happened on that day. Holly's role in, in pushing forward the idea that the election could be overturned and should be overturned is clearly important, but it was a bit of a strange political moment to take a time out to, to go after him. Um, and I think similarly, obviously any footage of what Trump was actually doing that day is very valuable. It, it seems unfortunate that they didn't get the, reportedly there were two outtakes, at least two outtakes, I think, of his statement directly to the protesters on January 6th, which his aides and staff thought were too inflammatory to release. His statement that they actually did release was also inflammatory because he praised them and said they loved, he loved them and that's what happens when an election is stolen. So it's a shame they didn't get those, but they did get his statement, as you mentioned, the next day on January 7th to the nation, they got outtakes where they showed that he didn't want to say the election was over. And clearly he doesn't even think now the election is over because we know that uh, just last week he was on the phone to the Speaker of the Wisconsin House, trying to get him to decertify Wisconsin's results uh, from two years ago. And what was that conversation like? Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those that, that it's very consistent. He makes his case, which I respect. Um, he would like us to do something different in Wisconsin. I explained that it's not allowed under the Constitution. He has a different opinion. Then he put the tweet out. So that's it. Yeah. But again, there was an aspect of that. Uh, you know, I'm all for exposing how utterly incompetent and preposterous uh, a president Donald Trump was. But there was something a bit strange in just including, you know, outtakes where he fumbled words. We all fumble words. I've done it earlier in this recording, which luckily will be edited out. It, it seems it seemed a little bit gratuitous to me. Uh, you did hear the only thing of interest to me was that you heard that the person behind the teleprompter as Trump was editing his speech on January 7th on the fly during the recording and asking for advice uh, seemed to be Ivanka Trump. And that perhaps gives a role of how actually central her her part in the White House was. It, it was always kind of a mystery what she was actually doing there. But I suppose she was doing things like that. And, you know, one of the moments that was interesting was from that outtake uh, was where Trump said he was referring to the heinous attack on the Capitol on January 6th. He stumbled over the word yesterday a couple of times and cut that out, uh, saying that yesterday was a hard word for him to say. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Just take it out. The heinous attack. Heinous attack ah, good. Take the word yesterday because it doesn't work with the heinous attack. But more interestingly, I think he he then on the fly thought to change the, the text to the attack um, on our country. On our country. Say on our country. Want to say that? No. no, no, no. And he said to the people recording the, the video, should I say, I'll, I'll say the attack on our country. And they all said, no, don't say that. So he didn't. 
You mean rather than the attack on the Capitol? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he was calling it the heinous attack there. You know, he was at that moment trying to dissociate himself from the violence, saying that anyone who broke the law would be prosecuted, that you don't represent our, represent our movement. But it's interesting that it even occurred to him to describe it as an attack on our country. And all of his aides, including Ivanka Trump, uh, told him not to say that. Ken, I saw you nodding along to Rob um, talking about the the footage of Holly being a bit gratuitous. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't find the outtakes of Trump funny and the you know Holly running away thing amusing. Um, but like you know, like Rob said, that does sort of take away from this idea that we are undertaking this solemn task of informing the public and the historical record about what exactly happened. Um, that being said, you know, I'm glad we're having the hearings. We'd certainly be worse off without them. But I think a concern that I have and that certainly my sources in the national security community have is that not all of it is going to come out because as we get closer to the events that unfolded, um, this becomes a very sensitive national security matter in the sense that protection of the president and of the chain of command at the very top um, touches on a lot of sensitive and highly classified information that I'm concerned Congress is not going to have the guts to disclose in any sort of way that the public can understand. I mean, we were a long way away from where we were when I believe it was Senator Gravel um, was reading, you know, top secret information from the Pentagon Papers uh, in the Senate. You know, we have a very different Congress now that I don't think is going to do something like that. If you look at the composition of the January 6th committee, the staff director is himself, former CIA, and there's a certain culture, and, and this is reflected in the conversations I've had with people from the national security community. Um, there's a culture wherein you there are certain things you just don't talk about. And um, unless Congress is going to be willing to, at least for the time being, rupture or transgress, or at least question a little bit that norm and, and you know, disclose some of these things, you know, there are, for example, protocols for protecting the president that um, President Trump might have been able to abuse. There's questions of just classified information that the Secret Service is privy to, that the Capitol Police are privy to. You know, if they're not willing to disclose some of that, it's really going to, I think, limit uh, the public's understanding of what it was that happened. Yeah, and we should say that the the committee did say that the the dam is. I think Liz Cheney's word was the dam is now opening, um, and there will be more hearings in September. But that w- that was my impression too. Was that you know their entire argument at the moment seems to be focused on dereliction of duty, like what Trump didn't do, right? And to me, like that seems like a much harder thing to sell to the American people than Trump actively did something. And there are such big holes in what we know, even in the very detailed timeline that they laid out last night. I mean, they mentioned that Trump was calling multiple senators. We have no idea who the senators are. We have no idea who else he was calling. And yeah, without being too speculative, you know, some of that information may never come out. So I guess in light of that, I wanted to know what you guys think the differences that the congressional hearings are really making. To, to pose the question that I asked at the top of the show, what do we know now that we didn't know then in a broad sense? And what are the American people getting from it? Can I just say, can I just jump in for a second to say that I think, you know, Ken's reporting is so important. And what's kind of fascinating about this is that the hearings have brought up uh, and pointed you know, really brought into focus how important this moment where Pence refused to get in the car that the Secret Service asked him to get in, in the, you know, the basement of the Capitol, um, because he didn't trust them to not spirit him away. And, you know, there were conversations between his aides and the Secret Service about this. And 
they, you know, they've been re reported in testimony, but the fact that we don't have the records of their exchanges during that time, I mean, is really just astounding. You know, in any, any other case, if this was a, you know, question of police, you know, accountability in, in some other sort of uh, setting, I mean, this is the, the loss of those records is just incredible if they are indeed lost. I mean, we're being told that they don't exist, but I'm not sure we even know that for sure. There absolutely must have been a communication among the Secret Service that day and the White House and this sort of person who was in its kind of unclear dual role, Tony Ornato, between the two, the agency and the White House. It's kind of an incredible scandal that that's lost because Pence, and also, of course, the fact that Pence isn't himself testifying and just telling us what happened, would you know, that's quite a loss. But it is kind of astounding that Congress, with, with all its powers, can't has failed to be able to get those records. They're still being concealed because if there was, you know, a plot, it's speculative because we can't. They're hiding something from us. But if there was plotting or discussion about taking him out of there so that he couldn't continue to go ahead with the electoral count, I mean, that's that's extremely important information, and we're just not. It's like as if we just, it's just being given up on. Ken, what do you know now about the status of those text messages by the Secret Service? What's come out since your story? Well, the timeline was kind of interesting. When I first reported it, the Secret Service spokesperson denied it in really unusually um, strong language, saying we categorically deny all of this and it's a complete mischaracterization, so on and so forth. And then a, about a day or two later, they ended up walking a lot of that back you know, it was found to be true that they deleted a lot of these messages. And then they said, okay, well, Congress, we're going to get you the messages that you've requested. Just give us a day or two. And then, um, you know, time rolls around. They end up producing one text message from both January 5th and 6th concerning two dozen Secret Service agents that were involved in the January 6th events. And I, first of all, I just want to say that's like the funniest number you could have because I feel like zero would almost make more sense because then it's like you lost everything. But no, they had they had one message. And so now the discussion, as I understand from um, folks in, in the national security community, you can't just what, – what Secret Service is saying is that they had a device update program. But there's so much information that is of um, intelligence importance perhaps for criminal investigations, things like that. Um, in, in Secret Service phones generally, that the idea that they would just potentially throw out evidence doesn't make a whole lot of sense, or the idea that they could. You, you know, one would think that you can have forensics go into the discarded phones and pull these messages out. And so these are this is essentially what they're trying to what the Congress is trying to find out. And one more thing I'll say is that um, these messages were deleted after the um, DHS Inspector General, that's the parent agency of Secret Service, requested them. And what's more, Secret Service initially disputed the that timeline, but it turns out multiple committees in Congress had also requested it prior to their deletion. So there were from, you know, both the executive and the legislative branch requests for these records prior to their uh, deletion. And what's your understanding? I mean, the Secret Service is such a weird group. Can you just talk a little bit about like who they report to and and what their role is? Yeah. So Tony Arnato, who uh, Rob mentioned before, um, was detailed to the White House and in conversations with the Secret uh, service agents that I know, that was extraordinarily unusual. Apparently, no precedent for that to detail a um, Secret Service agent. That doesn't just mean to protect someone in the White House. That means to work for the White House. It's essentially like you're a political appointee. And a lot of people in the Secret Service, who many of them are conservative, they found that my understanding is distasteful and kind of, you know, beneath what the office is supposed to be. Because you know, while they might be personally conservative, a lot of them do define themselves as, you know, they 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 want to feel as though they're. Um, 
carrying out their work with integrity and that it's above the fray of partisan politics. And so when that happened, a lot of people thought that that was sort of gross and weird. And it's still unclear, um, first of all, you know, why Trump did that. And it's unclear what Renato's role was in this because he was apparently in the White House having a conversation with, I think it was the Deputy National Security Advisor General um, Keith Kellogg discussing the presidential vice presidential limo coming up to Pence and trying to whisk him away. And if you just think through that logically, you remove Pence from the Capitol, put him in a secure facility, he's not going to be able to certify the results of the election. And so that was something that General Kellogg was urging Ornato not to do. Now, uh, Ornato disputes parts of that. But again, there's just a lot that we don't know about this because the committee hasn't looked at it. And going back to the concerns that I have about this investigation, I think that there's a general attitude that because the January 6th committee is staffed and led primarily by Democrats, that they're going to go real hard. But that's sort of, it's a little more complicated than that. I think they're going to go hard in the sense that Rob was talking about before and take advantage of these sort of funny, um, partisan-friendly bloopers like the Trump outtakes and how they're running away. That doesn't mean that they're going to want to disclose classified information, that they're going to want to embarrass the Secret Service as an institution, where, by the way, Tony Renato still serves now as assistant director. He hasn't been removed. He's still at the very top of leadership. I think he runs the training division. And so uh, I think that... uh, aspect to this that's not always appreciated is that when you have a new administration office, they generally want to uphold the legitimacy of the agencies, which they are tasked with running now. They don't want to deal with a crisis of confidence and these kind of things that now belong to them and are in their in their care. And so my fear is that um, that is going to keep them from from being as aggressive as they need to be to find out answers to the questions that, that I'm talking about now and that Rob brought up. It's almost like there's a deeper version of the state that exists between administrations <laughs> that we can't trust. You know, I also this this brings up for me also the question of timing, because it it feels to me like it's taken a really long time to turn the lens on the executive branch. Like for a long time, we were focused on, okay, who are the rioters charging them with with federal crimes and the Proud Boys and like getting all of that out of our system. And it just seems to me like it's taken a really long time to look at, okay, who was in the White House that day? Who was talking to Trump? Exactly. And if you look at J6, that subpoena to the Secret Service, that's the first subpoena the J6 committee has served to an executive branch agency, which is at the center of this entire scandal. You know, it's clear as day what the crowd was up to. But again, the operative question is, to what extent was the executive branch using that or aware in advance of the unrest, these sorts of questions have been very scarcely examined. And I just want to say, it's kind of shocking to me. There's an entire army of beat reporters for J6 that I think should have picked up on what I reported the Secret Service angle months ago, because this has been a problem that has existed for a certain period of time. I know for a fact that Congress didn't disclose it as soon as as soon as they um, were aware of it. And so the question is, well, why didn't anyone follow this? I Again, I think there's just a timidity to go after the executive branch because the guy in charge of it now has a D next to his name. And also the the DOJ is even farther behind. Uh, Jim Risen for The Intercept wrote a column that's really just reading that. I mean, we don't know anything about DOJ active investigations, but it's really reading the tea leaves into it seems like they're just now starting to get warrants to search people's phones and And now they've sort of indicated that they wouldn't be done with an investigation for quite a long time. Rob, did you have anything to add on on the 
timing of it, especially if you think that there's like a political angle in running these before the midterms. That's something that I've heard as like a big critique of the hearings. Oh, running them this close to the midterms? Yeah, like I think that there's a there's a slight theory on the left that they've delayed doing some of the more explosive stuff until now because it reflects well on on Democrats. I don't know how accurate that is. But. Yeah, I don't. I mean, Congress seems to be so slow on doing everything that it's hard to say, you know, and the DOJ. I do think that it's valuable. I think that they they have brought out there is stuff on the historical record now that wasn't before. Another interesting aspect that's a bit odd for people that have actually paid attention to, you know, the huge amounts of footage and and what was already in public. I know plenty of people told me that they were kind of astounded to be reminded of the violence of that day and what was happening that day. And it, it's sort of like a greatest hits if you've been a reporter covering this and looked through all this stuff. It's kind of funny to see sort of this greatest hits of those, you know, of that footage now be in a kind of prime time setting. Um, I guess it's good for educating people who hadn't fully paid attention. I mean, I find it hard to believe that people who already made their minds up that it was an Antifa plot and that Trump is totally innocent will be swayed by this. But I guess in a way, in general, for reminding people of, you know, how atrocious that day was, I guess it's good. It's kind of amazing that it's, you know, so quickly forgotten. 
He says go home. Yeah, he, he said to go home. It's kind of incredible, really. He did have a lot of power over the crowd. Rob, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how the hearings have been covered in the right wing media, like on Fox News. It's funny to me that sort of an awkward situation where Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram have been revealed to have been texting White House officials that day trying to get Trump to respond. And now, for instance, last night, Sean Hannity called the hearing, uh, quote, a cheap, selectively edited political ad. You've been watching the right wing media more closely than anyone. Uh, What do you make of it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an awkward moment for Fox if you think of it as uh, a journalistic endeavor. But I mean, that's sort of it's kind of a Potemkin news channel. It's not really trying to get the truth, even if that might embarrass the political side that it's on. I mean, it's obviously effectively an opposition research political advertising firm in the guise of a news organization. And so when you have a situation where it's revealed that Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity were texting the White House or texting Mark Meadows in the, in the middle of all this stuff, that would be terribly embarrassing if they, those were coming from a news organization. But for them, it's not really any different than what Kevin McCarthy said. If Kevin McCarthy was also texting and calling frantically, and now he doesn't want to mention that, but it's, you know, they were all in the Republican Party, basically. They're all in this sort of, you know, pro-Trump media operation. So that's not that surprising. I mean, I think what's also interesting is the way that that more mainstream part of the conservative media, uh, you know, echo chamber has also during this time from Jan- since January 6th started to absorb a lot of the more far right uh, conspiracy theory fringe ideas. Like, for instance, Tucker Carlson recently referred as if it was a matter of fact to this kind of crazy idea that Ashley Babbitt in the middle of the riot was trying to stop the rioters and help the police like 15 seconds before she was shot. And I've actually gone back through the, the publicly available footage and that's clearly not true. Uh, she actually did great. Her hand grazed one of the other rioters faces as she was like pushing past to get to the window, to jump through it, to get into the, uh, to, you know, it was the last barricade to the house floor. But then that's been re-edited. It was originally InfoWars footage, which even InfoWars didn't make anything out of. And another right-wing activist slash journalist re-edited it and said, look, this proves that Ashley Babbitt punched this rioter because she was so upset by what he was doing. She was clearly part of the mob screaming invectives at the police, wanting to get by there and jump through him a shot. But what I do think that the committee has kind of missed something, missed a, so far at least, missed an opportunity in terms of putting everything into the historical record by essentially barely referring to the killing of Ashley Babbitt, which for people on the right is like the central thing that happened that day. And part of, you know, their animating feeling that they're being hard done by, and this is a cover up. I feel like it would be much more useful if they, you know, recognized and explained and contextualized what happened with her killing. And actually in yesterday's hearing, there was a kind of strange bit of editing where they showed footage from the House chamber uh, recorded by, uh, I think it was Representative Kildee, from the the balcony. And I I know from having gone back through that footage and from having communicated with the the congressman's staff that that footage, you know, just a few seconds later, you could hear the gunshot uh, nearby that, that killed Ashley Babbitt. And it was put in in kind of a jumble and like it was cut, it was cut together as if it was just sort of this general mayhem, but they, they actually had, and they still have an opportunity to explain and present what exactly happened 
with the killing of Ashley Babbitt. And there's obviously, there's very likely footage, security camera footage uh, surrounding that that would make it more clear that we haven't, haven't seen yet. One reason is that there are active trials involving other people who were, you know, storming that same door. But I do think that that would be actually, it's not going to really convince many of these people who are, don't really want to be convinced. But I think it would be useful for the historical record for the rest of us to have a more clear accounting of exactly what happened there. Could you explain a bit more, like, what's what's at stake for them in the killing of Ashley Babbitt? Like, what would it, what does it imply if she was, I, I mean, it sounds like she absolutely wasn't on the side of the police, but what would it mean if she was? Like, why do they care about that? Well, there's a, you know, there's a, a constant grievance that they're the victims in all this. Um, and so there's the sense in which they, they've kind of see Ashley Babbitt as a martyr and that she was set up somehow. There's one idea that she was set up. I don't even know where that ends up, what the idea is that she was, you know, put in that position to be killed. There's all kinds of weird, very difficult to parse conspiracy theories. But there's a there's a simpler one, which is the idea that this is a wrongful death. It's a, essentially a police shooting of an unarmed woman. And they're obsessed with the idea that she was unarmed. I mean, she was wearing a backpack at the front of a mob, breaking into to leap across the last barricade to the House chamber where there were members of Congress still sheltering. Uh, I think if she, you know, if you change the situation so that a, a member of a left-wing mob was storming the White House and someone was jumping through a window that led to, you know, a passageway to the Oval Office and was shot, I think those same people would think that was totally fine. Uh, it's obviously everything is through a, through this political lens. It's part of that broader sense. And, and it was said, you know, it's actually part of Trump's statement on January 6th, where he says, you know, you see how other people are treated who are much, you know, evil people. And he, what he's talking about were left-wing protesters who at certain times during Black Lives Matter protests the previous year had fought with the police. And he's saying somehow in this fever dream of the right, that what was happening is that they're favored and let off and it's all fine for them, but we're poor us, we're assaulted and killed. And so it plays directly into that. He was saying that on the day of the attack, just after she was killed. So yeah, I think I, I personally think having looked at all that footage, there's a there's a, a better, more coherent record of what happened in the moments leading up to her death, and I, I suppose just after she was shot, that would be very helpful to have actually clearly explained. But it does seem like, that it's kind of weird. It does seem like in a partisan way, maybe the committee just doesn't want to refer to that because they feel like it somehow, you know, hurts their cause that that the real victims are American democracy and them. Anyway, I, I, I think that they're, they're, they're missing something by not doing everything they can to clearly explain that moment. There's definitely parts of that that have not been well explained. Well, one thing that has been a lingering question in my mind, which sort of relates to what you're saying, that the hearings are in some way hyper-focused on this defense of Congress like the and, and preserving American democracy. There was a moment in, in Thursday's hearing where the national the deputy national security advisor who testified, um, Pottinger, he was basically just asked to introduce himself and his his role in the White House and what he was doing on the day of January 6th. And he used the opportunity to say, look, I resigned my position on January 6th, but I'm really proud of all the work that I did for Trump. I, I felt then, as I do now, that it was a privilege to serve in the White House. Uh, I'm, I'm also very proud of President Trump's foreign policy accomplishments. We were able to uh, finally compete with China. We were 
Uh, also, and he sort of went on with it for a little while, and it was the striking moment because it, he was at once saying, "Yes, I did resign on January sixth for a reason, but I'm still totally loyal to Trump." And he didn't really want to elaborate at all on why he felt he had to resign, which brought into light for me how much it feels like now this is a train that all of these Trump officials are jumping on in order to kind of exonerate their own reputations and images. And yeah, I guess I wondered if, if, if you two had the same impression. I would say absolutely. And I think an interesting person to look at in this context is uh, Pat Cipollone, who had, you know, had to be dragged in to, to testify or give an interview, very much refused to say, to describe any conversation he had with Trump as though that's protected by attorney client privilege, which there are good arguments is not because he's actually, he was never Trump's lawyer. He was the white house lawyer, the people's lawyer in that sense. Uh, and also if Trump was doing something that was criminal, it's not covered by that, but he just wouldn't do that. And Cipollone, when you look at him, his background, you know, he has 10 children. He's a far right conservative pro-life Catholic. He's associated with Opus Dei, this kind of right wing sect. He, like Barr, he's just a conservative Catholic. He wanted the administration to do certain things. He was there to get three conservative radicals onto the Supreme Court. He achieved that. You know, abortion row has been overturned. These people got what they wanted, and they think that that's a perfectly fine way to operate. They can just put any completely incompetent, dangerous person in charge, and they feel like they can steer the ship. You know, it's interesting in the hearing, the previous hearing, Cipollone talked about he was pressed on whether Sidney Powell had actually been appointed special counsel by Trump during this kind of previous, this December kind of crazy meeting in the, in the Oval Office. And he basically said that the, he told the president he did have the power to appoint Sidney Powell to be special prosecutor um, and then just didn't do the work of giving Trump the documents that he had to fill out to make it official and so then he considered that she wasn't a special prosecutor afterwards and they just could ignore her. So that it's obviously true that they were fully aware of how the levers of power worked. And when, when they didn't want to let Trump do something, they just didn't let him do it. And so, you know, that I, I do think it's all reputation laundering at this stage, but they got what they wanted, you know, and they'll probably want to be back in power and get some more people on the Supreme Court and get some more right-wing fever dreams enacted. I guess we should end on this. One open question is, you know, whether this congressional investigation will eventually feed into a criminal investigation. And one development that happened this week was a letter from Merrick Garland that was uh, sent to DOJ employees on how they're supposed to remain neutral in election years. It reads in part that, quote, partisan politics must play no role in the decisions of federal investigators or prosecutors regarding any investigations or criminal charges. Apparently, this is not dissimilar from memos that have been sent in the past, but I guess I found it really striking thinking back to the to the Comey era, and I wondered if you two read anything into it in terms of the January 6th investigation and, and what we should expect. Well, that's a routine reminder and, um, you know, a policy that DOJ has in place generally. But I, I do think um, people that are concerned as I'm seeing many liberals are about the w willingness of, of 
holding high level Trump officials accountable. I don't see how you can call that an unreasonable concern given our given our history and the way that executive privileges are understood. Would it surprise you that people in the White House tend to be different to um, the argument that people in the White House have special privileges? So, you know, I don't pretend to know what DOJ is doing in secret, which, you know, those types of criminal investigations, if they exist at a high level, would be very tightly held. They treat them as what's called special investigative matters, SIMs, and they lock those things down so that very few people have access to them because they don't want it to leak. And so it is true that, you know, perhaps something's happening in a very discreet way. But again, presidents tend to like presidential privileges once they come into the White House. And that's a tendency that I have always seen. And I think that um, the only way that, you know, there would be a deviation from that is if there's sufficient public pressure to to hold to account a past president. And I guess that that remains to be seen. Well, and the implication of that, I think, is that DOJ and other agencies, I mean, the Secret Service and DHS and all of these agencies that have knowledge of what went on are, if if anything is really going to happen, they are going to have to make the choice to do something political, right? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly DOJ, the culture is inimical to that. They hate, if you talk to former FBI and DOJ, they hate to think of themselves as that, even though sometimes it can't be avoided, as you're saying. So I, I do think that there's a lot of cultural bulwarks to prevent things from moving in that direction. But again, these are really unprecedented circumstances. So we'll see. I would say that, you know, I think that outside of the outside of Washington, there's another aspect to this, which is that I think that the investigation in Fulton County of Trump's attempt to, you know, pressure officials into overturning the, the results there in Georgia in the presidential election. The the key question really, if if Trump were to be indicted there, the key defense, I think, for that insane phone call, which if we didn't have January sixth, that phone call that he made to Raffensperger and the fact that it's recorded is incredible, uh, singularly like disturbing and amazing evidence of, you know, malpractice, malfeasance by uh, the sitting president that he was asking the people who counted the votes to just give a different result. I mean, it's an amazing, the whole thing is amazing. And I think as far as I understand it, the legal defense that Trump could offer if, if he was to be indicted there was that he was basically just doing his job, that he thought that there, he believed these crazy conspiracy theories, that there had been all these things wrong with the election. And he was pressing the local officials to take care of them, even though they told him those things weren't true. I think that what the hearings, what I've noticed is that I think that the hearings have presented a lot of evidence that Trump uh, had very, very good reason. Uh, A lot of people around him were telling him that those conspiracy theories were not true, that all of these things that he thought went wrong in Georgia did not go wrong. And he had enough information that he should have known if he didn't know that those things weren't true by the time he made that call to Raffensperger very late, just before January 6th, a few days before January 6th, that weekend. So uh, it's potentially the possibility that if that grand jury decided to go ahead and, and the prosecutor decided to indict him, you know, then it goes to a jury in Georgia and Georgia itself has been resistant to Trump's charms, obviously. So you know, that this could play a role in that way in educating the public and giving people information and prosecutors information that could cut against this argument that he didn't know. And then you get back to this, you know, somewhat funny, but revealing and kind of maybe important thing that Liz Cheney said, where she said that this defense of Trump is that poor him, he couldn't have known. And she said, you know, he's a 76 year old man. He's not an impressionable child. He, he had every reason to know that the election was not stolen. And yet he persisted right up to demanding that the Georgia Secretary of State 
awarded to him, uh, give him one more vote than he needed. Also, Steve Bannon's, the clip of Steve Bannon in October 2020 saying that this was actually their plan to push back from the very beginning, even before the election. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. Also, also, if Trump is is losing Mm -hmm. by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, Mm -hmm. it's going to be even crazier. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. If Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. Absolutely. And I mean, actually, it was somebody's plan in 2016. Roger Stone came up with the idea of stop the steal in 2016 when they expected Trump to lose. And they were talking about it. I mean, Don Jr. has a direct message conversation with WikiLeaks about where he's being encouraged to challenge results in 2016. This was, you know, a long, long time coming. Amazing. Well, Ken and Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Good to be with you. That was Ken Klippenstein and Rob Mackey, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Nausicaa Renner, Washington editor at The Intercept. If you'd like to back our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts@theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 